7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Global temperatures this June were the highest on record, parching lands all over the Earth. Perhaps the most dramatic effect of the dry conditions is playing out in the Arctic. Wildfires are rampant, and they'll amplify the very temperature rises that caused them. And Gulf states such as Saudi Arabia want to advertise their cultural capital, even as they restrict freedom of speech. We take a look at the unlikely rise of Gulf book fairs. First up, though. Argentina's economy is having a turbulent week. Its stock exchange and peso plummeted after a surprise result in a presidential primary vote over the weekend. In the poll, the conservative incumbent Mauricio Macri was trounced by his left-wing opponent Alberto Fernandez, whose running mate is former president Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. The president seemed rattled. He said it had been a bad election. But the full presidential poll will take place in October, and yesterday, Mr. Macri struck a different tone, vowing to fight. He apologized for his earlier gloomy words. He had been without sleep, shocked by the result, and sad about the effect on the markets. He said he had heard the Argentines who had suffered as his government imposed measures that were meant to stabilize the economy, but which had caused hardship. El domingo hubo muchos argentinos que creyeron en el camino que empezamos pero que después de un año y medio muy duro, dijeron no puedo más. He announced welfare subsidies and tax cuts for the working class. But it's not clear those will be enough to convince people who can't afford the basics anymore. We're looking at stores literally marking up prices every day now. And we're looking at a population that accustomed as it is to high inflation is nevertheless asking itself, as one, one woman said to me yesterday, in a grocery store, where is this going to end? David Smith reports on Argentina for The Economist. 90% of respondents in opinion polls before this vote we've just had, 90% said inflation was their number one priority. And this is the cause of what happened here last weekend in this nationwide vote um, ahead of the election proper in October, where the government of Mauricio Macri, President Macri, was severely punished um, by those who voted for him four years ago on the economy, uh, with people saying quite clearly, uh, we've had enough. And, and how, did the, how did the markets respond to, to that outcome? Oh, the market response, Jason, was dramatic. The day after that vote, we saw the, the local stock exchange crash by 37% 
in terms of the peso, the local, the local currency, by 48% in terms of the dollar, because this economy is so linked um, to the US dollar. Uh, that's a, a record-breaking fall in one day, a single-day fall, and it's, it's carried on throughout this week. But the economy hasn't been doing well at all. Um, In in fact, it's been reflected in this vote. So why then would the markets think that uh, a loss for Macri is is a bad thing for the market? Uh, Because the markets, Jason, look out there and see the return of a government, um, the last government led by former President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who's now running as vice president, They see the return of a government that they know all too well, a bloated government, a public deficit that was very, very high, welfare programs across the board, and distinctly unfriendly to business in terms of currency controls, in terms of interventionist policies that the markets are, quite frankly, terrified of. But that's clearly not the way the people see it. Why why have they voted him down then? Well, the middle class in particular that voted for Macri back in 2015 seems on the basis of this vote to have turned against him. And I don't think we need to look much further than the economy. Inflation is one factor. Rising unemployment is another factor. Uh, Interest rates now at 70%. But also, I think, rising poverty. Um, Something that Macri had said on coming to power that he would address. He made poverty his his number one priority. And four years on, the numbers of people living in poverty uh, have gone up. Almost a third of Argentina now lives below the poverty line. So what is it that Mr. Macri has done wrong here? Has he been a steady hand on the tiller or not? Well, a combination of policy errors on one level, saying that at the end of 2017 that the inflation rate would be down to 15% in in 2018, it turned out to be 47%, three times as high. He's also been not, it should be said, helped by what's happened in the wider world. The interest rate move in the United States in an economy that's that's so important to Argentina in terms of its, its dollar impact, that didn't help him. And also he had to seek, April last year, the largest ever loan from the International Monetary Fund, something that in many ways, economists felt was a necessary move. But here in Argentina, they have long memories of of the IMF. And his opponents rather successfully portrayed the IMF as telling Argentina how to live economically and otherwise. Um, And that played very well and played against Macri. And how does Mr. Macri's situation look from a from a regional perspective? Are there other sort of conservative and fiscally conservative leaders out there who will be who will be seeing this fall and uh, and getting a bit nervous? Well, Macri had been a standard bearer for a new centre right conservative um, leadership in in Latin America, and obviously in the wider world. We'd looked, for example, at the election of President Bolsonaro in neighbouring Brazil, you know, the biggest player in the region. And there had been a a view um, that this was a new conservative, centre-right, pro-market, business-friendly leadership in Latin America. Uh, If Macri now goes down, uh, as could well happen, then that will need a re-evaluation significantly in Washington, D.C., where the Trump administration had been very supportive. You mentioned Mr. Trump and, and Washington. 
Probably the administration's biggest regional headache is the collapse of Venezuela, though. How much do you think an eventual Fernandez ticket win would affect the situation there? I think it's a very good question, Jason. President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner had been openly um, supportive of first Hugo Chavez uh, and then the Maduro government in Venezuela. And Macri had gone out of his way in his time to isolate Venezuela and to call out the Maduro government for what's been happening there. I think this could lead to a fundamental shift with Argentina sitting very much, I suspect, on the fence when it comes to Venezuela, as opposed to where we've been in the last four years, which is openly opposed um, to the Maduro government in, in Caracas. This could be a fundamental shift. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Around a huge band of the Earth's surface, wildfires big enough to be seen from space are burning relentlessly, both above and below ground. But not in a place that you might expect. The Arctic is ablaze, and the implications for the climate are dire. The Arctic this year and subarctic regions are experiencing unusually hot and dry conditions. And as a result of that, we are seeing a remarkable number of fires across the region, spanning from Alaska to Siberia and Greenland. Katrine Breik is The Economist's environment editor. The location of these fires and how they're burning specifically the fact that they're burning very slowly and that they're staying in the same place for days and weeks at a time suggests that underneath that you have peat that's burning as well. And that is the real concern from a climate change perspective. So why do you think we're seeing such an increase in these fires? So the unusual fire activity this year has been spurred by very hot and dry conditions in the Arctic and globally. The World Meteorological Organization data showed us last month that June was the hottest June on record. Climate change is not warming the planet uniformly. Different regions warm at different rates. And the Arctic is warming much faster than the rest of the planet. This year, this summer, we've seen temperatures in the Arctic anywhere from three to 10 degrees warmer than the average for 1981 to 2010. So that's extreme levels of warming. And as a result of that, what's happening on the ground is that the vegetation is drying out and you have ideal conditions for fire starting. They're natural fires. In all likelihood, most of these fires, because they're so far from human settlements and from infrastructure, a lot of these fires are starting naturally, for instance, as a result of lightning striking dry tinder. So what effects do those fires have? Do they not just burn out? 
Well, they do burn out, but the question is what happens while they're burning out. Straight off the bat, you have huge amounts of air pollution, which is being spread across the entire region all the way around the pole as a result of prevailing winds. The longer-term consequence is that these fires are releasing large quantities of greenhouse gases, CO2 and methane particularly. This is where this distinction between above-ground fires which burn vegetation, and below-ground fires, which burn soil, is very important. So above-ground fires, vegetation stores carbon in, in the form of plant material, and when you burn it, that's released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. But then when the vegetation regrows, it sucks some of that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere and stores it again. As long as a region that has burnt regrows has sort of a period of 10 years, roughly, to regrow, then the fire can be considered carbon neutral. The situation is very different when you're looking at ground fires. Most of the time, dirt obviously doesn't burn. But in the Arctic, the soil has a high concentration of carbon. So in your garden, it's probably a few percent. In the Arctic, it's more like 40 to 60 percent carbon. These are frequently referred to as peat soils. And as a result of that, they can go up in flames. Now, peat soils take hundreds to thousands of years to form. During that period, they're sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it in what is normally a wet, waterlogged soil. This year, it seems the peat has dried sufficiently to go up in flames. And as a result of that, all of those gases, all of that carbon that's been stored for hundreds to thousands of years is being released in an instant. And that has real consequences for climate change. So in a sense, the fires this year creates kind of a feedback loop that makes more fires likely. When you have a fire that releases this amount of carbon dioxide, the result of that is that you amplify warming, you create conditions which are more likely to lead to dry tinder in subsequent years and therefore more likely to lead to natural fires in subsequent years and therefore more likely to, again, release more emissions in subsequent years. So it's what's known as a classic positive feedback loop in climate change. So another positive feedback loop is that fires produce a fine black soot known as black carbon, which can get carried across the region by winds and deposited on sea ice. Now, sea ice is normally white, which reflects sunlight, but if you cover it in black soot, then it's going to absorb the energy from the sun and melt the sea ice. Further to that, If you melt enough of it, then you expose the water underneath that. So you now have deep blue water at the surface of the Arctic instead of white floating ice, which only serves to accelerate that process. So you you soak up more energy again and you just accelerate the melting of the sea ice. So it sounds like there's a lot of reasons to try to stop these fires. I mean, what's being done to stop them? That is where things get really, really difficult and depressing. Because these fires took a long time to be noticed, they were picked up initially on satellite imagery. By the time they're picked up on satellite imagery, they're so big that they're really difficult to fight in it, and it requires huge amounts of resources, which most of these countries don't have. So the US has been firefighting in Alaska. Russia's approach initially was to say that they're not close to human settlements and therefore not worth, frankly, the money that would be required to fight them. That's recently changed. There was a large petition by Russians to petition the government to fight the fires because of the air quality concerns that they were having. And as a result of that, the Russian government sent in the army. I think the expectations is going to be that these efforts are going to be mostly ineffectual. The fires are simply too big at this point. Added to that, if we come back to the 
notion that many of these are likely to be peat fires. Fighting peat fires is very, very difficult. It requires huge amounts of water. Two on this scale, I believe, have been successfully fought in the past. And the way one of the researchers put it to me was they essentially had to divert a river in order for this to happen. Now, you've got multiples of these across the entire region. It's really very concerning. Katrine, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you, Jason. There's an old saying in the Arab world, Cairo writes, Beirut publishes, Baghdad reads. But these days, it's the countries of the GCC, or Gulf Cooperation Council, that want to be known as literary beacons. That's why book fairs are flourishing in places such as Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Qatar. But there's just one problem, censorship. How can you have a thriving cultural scene in places where the cultural climate is so restrictive? Kuwait has always been the most intellectually open of the Gulf states. It has a raucous parliament that has vibrant print media. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. Over the past five years or so, the censorship board has really gone into overdrive. It's banned about 4,000 books over the past five years. And so outside of the Kuwait Book Fair last year, there was a local artist who finally was fed up with the censorship. And he erected a mock cemetery to all of the books that were banned. And on each headstone was the name of a book that had been banned, whether the works of Dostoevsky or of Naguib Mahfouz, the Nobel Prize winning Egyptian author. Of course, within a couple of hours, fittingly enough, the authorities came around and censored his anti-censorship protest. And this was a microcosm of a broader issue across the Gulf, which is all six members of the GCC are trying to become literary hubs, stops on the literary circuit, and yet they're trying to do it without really opening up to intellectual or political debate. What do you mean, though, by trying to be on the literary circuit? Well, the literary hub of the Arab world in the 20th century was the Greater Levant, particularly Egypt, Lebanon, and Iraq. And so the oldest book fair in the Arab world, for example, it's in Cairo. It's been going on for 50 years, draws about 2 million visitors every year. And that made sense because Egypt was an intellectual hub. So, of course, publishers would come showcase their works in Egypt. A bit harder of a sell to get them to come to Sharjah, for example, which is an emirate north of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And yet, over the past 10 years or so, their book fair has become an international event that also attracts more than 2 million visitors, which is quite a feat. It's more than double the population of the Emirates. And this is something that we've seen across the Gulf from Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, other countries. All of them are trying to establish these literary events, these book fairs, to put themselves on the map. But why? Why so much effort in that? Well, partly for publishers, there's a strong commercial incentive to go to these events. The Gulf states have a lot of oil and gas wealth. They have wealthier citizens. The UAE, for example, only has about 10 million people. Egypt has 100 million people. But the book market in the UAE is about 20% larger than the book market in Egypt. For publishers, there's a commercial incentive. For the Gulf states themselves, it's a part of a broader push to establish themselves as cultural or media hubs. So If you're an Arab watching satellite news, you're probably watching a channel that is based in and funded by the Gulf states. They've managed to entice Western universities like NYU and museums like the Guggenheim to open branches in the Gulf. And so there's this top-down push to spend billions of dollars to promote intellectual and cultural institutions in the GCC. But also a top-down push not to say certain things. I mean, what sort of stuff is allowed? What sort of stuff is encouraged? One of the problems for writers and publishers is that you don't necessarily know year to year what's going to be allowed. In Saudi Arabia for a long time, 
religion was the obvious red line and anything that was deemed insensitive to Islam would have run afoul of the religious police. Now, their power has been curtailed over the past couple of years. And so politics have really emerged as the issue that you can't discuss. But in some countries, it's a struggle to figure out exactly what is banned and why. So to use Kuwait as an example, where they've banned 4,000 books over five years, it's quite clear when you read the reports from the censorship board that the censors are not actually reading all of the books they ban. They're searching for keywords. And so if you mention angels or Adam or Satan, that's enough to potentially have your book banned on grounds of blasphemy. It doesn't matter what you're saying about Adam or about angels. Just the fact that you mention it potentially gets you onto a blacklist. But surely the powers that be that are pushing for this cultural awakening and what have you see a contradiction in that these things are so restricted. I mean, if you can't even say the word angel in passing, that is constricting what people are going to do to try to sell. Well, the government's insists there's no contradiction. This is in the UAE, for example, the so-called year of tolerance. It's a government-led campaign to encourage tolerance of other religions. And so Emirati officials say you're free to write about religion as long as you're not insensitive to other religions. And you're free to write about politics as long as your politics are moderate. They have in their head a, a clear view of what is acceptable and not acceptable. But what's maddening for writers and publishers alike is that they don't often know what those red lines are, what that view is on the part of the government. And so not only trying to stay within the government red lines, but trying to figure out on almost a daily basis sometimes what those red lines are. Thank you very much for your time, Greg. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.